Catskill. Live from Radio Catskill Studios in Liberty, New York, it's the local edition. I'm your host, Jason Dole. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Coming up in the second half of the program, we'll take a look at how local tax breaks, as distributed by industrial development agencies, or IDAs, are intersecting with New York State's lofty climate change goals. It's a regular check-in with New York Focus. But first, we've got an update on one of the biggest local stories that we've been following in recent weeks. And that's the abrupt closure of Sullivan County Head Start. The impact that this has had as well. We do have an update for you, but first a quick reminder of the basics of this story. On Friday, February 2nd, Sullivan County Head Start announced on social media they were closing until further notice, effective immediately. A sudden closure that left over 300 children and their families without services, as well as 83 full-time and 11 part-time employees out of work. They're a non-profit organization located at State Route 52 in Woodburn, founded in 1989, operated Head Start and Early Head Start programs in Sullivan County, and they also have two facilities in Monticello that are also currently closed. Last Friday on Radio Chatskill, Congressman Mark Molinaro, who represents New York's 19th District, which includes our listening area, told Tim Bruno that the provider has now relinquished its grant, clearing the way for a new service provider to take over Sullivan County Head Start. John Little, Sullivan County Commissioner of Health and Human Services Division, says an interim management company will assist in restarting Head Start operations until a long-term solution can be established. And joining us now with the latest is Sullivan County Commissioner of Health and Human Services Division, John Little. John, welcome into the studios here. Welcome on air. Good to be with you, Jason. And also joining us, we have Laura Quigley, Commissioner of Sullivan County Division of Community Resources. Laura, also, thank you for being here tonight. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So, um, you know, let's start first off. Was there anything missing in that recap there? <coughs> well, I think you captured it pretty well. Um, but we're quickly moving and responding to, you know, what's been presented to us at the county level. So, you know, what I can talk about is uh, the things that we've been doing individually for for the kids and their families. And Lars played a very active role uh, with the board and and getting them up and running as quickly as possible and kind of harkens back to the days of the pandemic for us when (laughs) I brought my military training and uh, emergency community assistance concept uh, to to Laura that she's taken off and run with and you know, we're back in crisis management mode a bit, but we're uh, it's something we're familiar with. You're managing the crisis. I think it was hard for me to follow, and we've been following this right along. It was hard for me to really get my head around this story um, uh, uh, until really looking at this and realizing that this is essentially seems to be a change in who is running Head Start, that that's, that's basically what we're going through. Um, it, how that – yeah. So how that works is um, Head Start – Sullivan County Head Start Incorporated is funded through the Office of Head Start in Washington, D.C. Okay. So by relinquishing the grant, Office of Head Start has contracts with an organization called Community Development Institute, otherwise known as CDI. Through their contract, it's a national contract, they come in as the interim manager 
and they come in to get Head Start back up and running, get the program up and running quickly. Um, and then there's a closeout process that happens for the program that Sullivan County Head Start had that they have to go through. Both myself, Donna Willie, who's the chair of, I mean, who's the CEO for the Child Care Council, and legislator Brian McPhillips, the three of us have been appointed to the board, and we're going to kind of help them through that transition. We've already been in touch. Uh, CDI has already been in touch with us. We had a, a virtual meeting today. They're on the ground already. We're hoping in the next few weeks that um, Head Start will be reopened. In the next few weeks. In the next few weeks. They're looking to – they'll be reaching out to the staff to uh, set up uh, virtual interviews. They're going to be reaching out to the parents over the next week um, to get – you know, to be able to talk to the parents, let them know what the process is and and what's going on moving forward. So for whatever uh, brought this to, I will say that the Office of Head Start has responded. They have a very good mechanism in place to respond to things like this. It then allows either Sullivan County Head Start or another provider to reapply when the grant becomes available again. And John, what what are you looking at in this? So with my primary responsibility being social services, I lead out with making sure that the uh, individual kids are taken care of and health as health and human services commissioner. I also have public health and we provide the early intervention services. So the focus last week was very much on making sure that uh, the medically fragile kids were taken care of first, that they had access to all of their occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech therapy, uh, services. So there were 74 kids that were involved um, with that, um, that we made sure that they were reconnected to their services, uh, that we found places for them to be seen since the school was closed. <clears throat> and then we've also looked to help um, either families that where parents aren't able to work or um, in working with Lars folks, folks that applied for unemployment to get them assistance. So, you know, we helped um, 17 different folks who applied for unemployment, helped them apply for food stamps, uh, temporary assistance, home energy um, assistance program. Um, and we also, through social services, can provide subsidies to families. So Head Start, that's a free federal program for the families that qualify. Um, for us at the county and state level, we can get people into mainstream daycares um, with with subsidy payments. So we're able to help with with some of that. So we were processing uh, subsidy applications last week to help families that were in the uh, in the most urgent need, but we're all pretty encouraged by the fact that you know it looks like CDI and the uh, uh, with them coming in from the office of Head Start, that's going to give us a chance to get back on our feet here real quick. Well, that's one of the things I wanted to ask about is is does this impact uh, parents' abilities uh, to work? You know, if their kids aren't in program, so getting kids into daycare is one way to to help with that. Yeah, ab- absolutely, it is, and it's you know something that. You know, Laura and I talk a fair amount about, and it's something that we deal with all the time. There's certainly not enough child care to go around. That's a nationwide issue. Um, but with, um, you know, roughly 330 slots shutting down all at once in a county with not a lot of space available to begin with, that's that's pretty traumatic for the families involved. So we wanted to help them as quickly as we could. Um, so folks are, <clears throat> you know, still welcome to call us. Um, our phone number is uh, 845 292 Zero one hundred. That's the main switchboard at Social Services, and um, when folks call there during our business hours, 
Um, and if there's snow, we might not be there tomorrow, but um, certainly you can get in contact with us via that number, again, 845-292-0100, and we're helping folks out get connected to the services. And, uh, you know, it's also a good opportunity for me to speak to uh, Unite Us, our social care network, and uh, it's another way for us to connect people to services, and folks can go right on to the county's website, find social services, and ask for help right through the website. We actually have a web form now that allows people to get connected to not just our services, but services all over the county. And to piggyback off of um, John, one of the offices I oversee is the Center for Workforce Development. And uh, right from when this happened, we got the word out that regardless of whether this was opened, uh, closed for a week, two weeks, whatever, that the staff needed to apply for unemployment to get whether either temporary or full. So they set it up um, down at the Career Center for when staff come in, they're triaged by the director, Lorene Gebeline. If they need housing, food, whatever, they're referred to social services. They're allowed, you know, they can apply right there for unemployment, either online or over the phone, and they can immediately get linked with whatever services. But I think the big thing is um, – when you're when you lose your job, whether you know it's happening or you don't know it's happening, it's very traumatic and it upends your life. So one of the things that the Center for Workforce Development is also providing is that shoulder to cry on for people, and some have, um, and helping them to understand that this this is you know temporary. Things are going to reopen again. There's other opportunities, and and to kind of help them hang in there and and keep going. Um, and the other thing, too, were, like you mentioned before, Jason, those parents whose jobs um, could be in jeopardy for losing their child care, because we know that the folks that use Head Start a lot of times are your entry level workers. And so they are most economically fragile when it comes to losing their positions. So it was really important to make sure. Um, and, you know, John's team did such a great job of hooking people up immediately. And I know the Child Care Council got involved in that as well um, with providers. So we went as fast as we could um, to make sure that we were able to help people. But if there is staff out there that is looking still undecided or didn't realize that they could apply for unemployment, they can call the Career Center at um, 845-794-3340 or they can actually go online to dol.ny.gov and apply for unemployment right there online. Um, and then they can always call the Career Center with any follow-up questions. And uh, and just along those lines, you were talking about the, like the workers. I mean, when I first heard about this story, the story, the first question I had was like, oh, my God, how many families does, mm-hmm. does this impact? How many kids and parents are affected? But um, – just seeing the, this information, 83 full-time and 11 part-time employees yes. out of work. I mean, that's that's a big blow to those folks. Is the plan to try to, to when it restarts, that those folks get to keep their jobs? Is that, that That is the plan. They have to go through the process again because it's like having a new employer come in to run the program. Yeah. So they'll have their own separate license. And everyone will have to go through um, the interviewing process again. Uh, but the fact that they have a lot of the necessary fingerprinting background and all that already done should help speed that process speed up. Speed it up a little, okay. And the and they will know the new the new people running this and and the the, the CDI they will know that these folks used to do this and oh this so just is a couple all weeks part, ago. The thing I was so impressed with 
is they have a structure in place. They have this down. They know what they're doing. Um, the thing that I appreciated also was so many of the people that are involved in this from CDI are former Head Start employees. So they know the program. They know uh, what's involved. And all they kept talking about, which I really appreciated, and I know my fellow board members did as well, was the focus was on the children, was getting the children back in, getting them back to school again. And from our perspective, with the work that both John and I do, those number of slots that were lost at Head Start is roughly about 15% of the available slots for childcare in the county. So that is a serious blow, um, even on a temporary basis. And I, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but of course, the CDI um, doing this job and doing it as quickly as, as you guys can that's still just a short-term measure. There's got to be a long-term solution. Can you tell me at all how that process is supposed to go to find a, a long-term uh, provider for this? And that is where the Office of um, Head Start comes in because CDI at the, will – At the federal level. At the federal yeah. level because CDI is um, an interim management team. They'll be there as long until we get a new uh, local provider. So – Office of Head Start will do what they need to do, and when the next round of funding comes out, that comes out, and they're going to look for local providers. Now, Sullivan Head Start could reapply. There could be some other provider locally or maybe even a provider in another county that wishes to expand, whatever that might be. But CDI will be there until a new provider is chosen, and then there's a tried-and-true structure of transition for that as well. Right. And uh, then this also means at that point, you say in another round of funding, is that like a new grant from the federal government? Because part of the news here is that, that you know, we've relinquished this grant, I guess, as a necessary step to change providers. Uh, but will there still be federal money after all? This well, is done? yes. I mean, Head Start, the funding goes in five year blocks that are renewed annually based on, you know, fiscal performance, all of that stuff. So when that comes around again. Um, is when it will, then people will. It's not like a special pot of money. Uh, this is the Head Start funding that right. is that is available and in, in out there. All right. John, anything else? Well, I think one thing to, a couple things maybe to remember in all this is, um, you know, no matter what that medium to longer term looks like, there are um, more child care providers coming. Um, Healthy Kids has recently expanded. They're well known throughout the Hudson Valley and they've, They've expanded in Monticello, Liberty, and I believe they have a center open in Narrowsburg as well now. So, um, and we've also expanded pediatric mental health through Aster Services for Children and Families. So they're uh, on our campus in Liberty, and they have uh, Head Start operations in other counties. So I'm as as tough as the moment is that we're in for all the families involved. I am I'm kind of optimistic about where we're headed, and I think um, it's also important for us to mention that. Although, yes, we are still in a very tough moment and we want to get open as quick as we can, I think the uh, support that we've gotten from uh, our elected officials, Congressman Molinaro, Assemblywoman Gunther, Senator Oberacher, Senator Schumer, Gillibrand, I mean, they all engaged right away. Our local electeds in the county, they jumped right on this. They were very aggressive in working on this, So, um, which was um, uh, very, very good, I think, from our perspective to see that they were – 
the elected officials got right into this with us and um, and really wanted to do the right thing quickly. All right. We're, we're going to have to go before we do. I want to remind people real quick where they can go for more information. For example, the number for social services is 845-292-0100. That's 292-0100. Center for Workforce Development, a career center is at 845-794-3340. That's 794-3340. County website, SullivanNY.us. And any other place you want to direct folks? Just for unemployment, um, dol.ny.us. dol.ny.us. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been talking live in studio with Commissioner of Health and Human Services, John Little, and Laura Quigley, Commissioner, Solomon County Division of Community Resources. Thank you for coming in here to explain all of this to us and uh, keep us connected to what's going on. Thank you. Thanks, Jason. You're listening to The Local Edition, winner of Excellence in Broadcasting Awards from the New York State Broadcasters Association. Radio Catskill. Listen local. We are keeping an eye on the weather here at Radio Catskill. And reminder, there is a winter storm warning. It goes in effect tonight at midnight. Goes until 1 o'clock tomorrow afternoon. Heavy snows expected. Accumulation anywhere from 6 to 12 inches. This storm's a little unpredictable when it comes to snowfall. We'll be keeping an eye on it. Now back to the local edition. New York Focus is the independent newsroom reporting on how power and politics in New York impacts people's lives. And Radio Catskills partner with New York Focus to regularly bring you their in-depth journalism. Today we're delving into an issue. It intersects with economics, environment, and policy as New York, like many states, is striving to phase out fossil fuels. But local tax breaks as distributed by industrial development agencies at the county level uh, are turning out to be a hidden obstacle. New York Focus reports on these hidden subsidies. Julia Rock co-wrote the most recent article. We last spoke to her in November about a similar intersection between IDAs and proposed solar installations. I spoke with Julia earlier today. So just So just to zoom out a little bit, New York has about 110 of these local agencies at the town and county level called industrial development authorities that give out a little bit over a billion dollars each year in tax breaks, largely property tax breaks. And these agencies were set up to attract economic development to different areas and economic development, I mean, mainly meaning jobs. Um, by handing out tax breaks to corporations sort of with the idea that they could lure them to the area, you know, to create jobs. And one thing that I realized while working as a climate reporter this fall is that developers of all types, wind, solar, natural gas power plant developers, all see these industrial development agencies as playing a very important role in getting projects built. Because if you are trying to build a huge piece of infrastructure, one of your biggest costs is going to be property taxes. So oftentimes when developers say, again, you're looking to build a wind farm, a solar farm, maybe a power plant, you know, when you're figuring out where you're going to build it and how you're going to get it done, you you really want to be able to negotiate a lower property tax bill. So the story I wrote this fall about wind and solar was about how some um, local county legislator, legislatures or local activists sort of saw these industrial development agencies actually as a way to block projects because they thought, you know, if they could convince the industrial development agency not to hand out 
a property tax break, um, then maybe the wind or solar project wouldn't come to the area. And now the most uh, recent article that we're going to talk about, co-written with Colin Kinneberg, the titles Hidden Subsidies Prop Up New York's Fossil Fuel Industry. And it's almost like a, a corollary to that story because this, at least your opening narrative, is about a, a town, you know, Athens, essentially trying to uh, use the IDA to not renew tax breaks for a, a fossil fuel energy producer, a natural gas power plant. Yeah, so... Uh, as as was the case, you know, with, with the renewables that I wrote about in the fall, it turns out that some of the biggest property tax breaks that IDAs have given over the past decade or so have been to power plants, which, you know, as you can imagine, are these huge multi-billion dollar pieces of infrastructure where if they paid full property taxes, it could be a really high bill. Um, and so I was writing a little bit. The, the opening of the story you mentioned is about a huge natural gas power plant in the Hudson Valley in Athens, New York, that um, over a decade ago was granted uh, a tax break, uh, a break on its property tax bills to operate. Um, last year, the deal for the tax break was set to expire, at which point the power plant would have had to go on to pay full property tax bills. So they went to the IDA to renegotiate uh a, a, another tax break for another 15 years. What's sort of remarkable about the timing here, of course, was that when the plant was first built, New York was in a position where it was promoting natural gas development. Uh, natural gas was supposed to replace coal. It was sort of seen as a bridge fuel, um, which, of course, has turned out to be wrong. But in, in, in the energy transition, a way to reduce emissions while getting rid of coal. Now, of course, the state is trying to shut down its fossil fuel infrastructure In 2019, the state passed really uh, aggressive emissions reductions targets. So it was sort of remarkable that uh, just last year, a huge natural gas power plant was trying to get another very large subsidy to operate. Part of what you've identified in all of this reporting is that there is a disconnect between state goals, state administration, and then local administration through uh, these IDAs. There, there's actually kind of a disconnect that you've really found here. I think there are sort of two things going on here. I mean, first, it seems like these industrial development agencies are playing a really important role in New York climate and energy politics uh, because they have the power to sort of shape the finances of constructing an energy project. At the same time, sort of as you point out, you know, a lot of climate policy in New York is being written at the state level and, you know, specifically the goal to phase out fossil fuels and to spur a bunch of new development of wind and solar. And yet, if you go down to the local level, it's not always the case uh, that the industrial development authority is in alignment with the state. And that, you know, that might be in part for understandable reasons. I mean, um, In in the case of the wind and solar project, as we had discussed, IDAs are supposed to create jobs, and those projects don't create a lot of permanent jobs. You know, at the same time, in in the case of these these, um, fossil fuel power plants, I think a lot of times the towns or counties will think, you know, even though we have to offer them a tax break to come, it's still much better to have them come in and be paying millions of dollars of years in property taxes on land that otherwise probably wouldn't be creating very much revenue. So I think in terms of the mandate of the local authority, you can maybe understand why they're making the decisions they are. And yet it is going against, in many cases, the state's climate goals. Is there going to be a reckoning at some point? Have folks at the state level picked up on what you've picked up on here, this disconnect? 
Totally. I mean, one thing that's been interesting in all of these stories is that legislators have been, you know, extremely interested in our findings. And there is a state entity that is in charge of oversight of the IDAs. It's the authority's budget office. But that is an agency that has historically been pretty understaffed. Your listeners right, might remember that last year there was a big state Senate investigation led by Senator Skoufis into one of these industrial development authorities in Orange County, and they actually put an independent monitor in place there to uh, basically keep an eye on what the IDA has been up to. So there's definitely been a little bit of legislative attention and statewide attention on these IDAs. But certainly, you know, I as a reporter, I'm very curious to see how legislators respond to our findings that focus that the IDAs are not always in alignment with the state climate goals. I I can see some good news in your reporting here because you have a nice graph here that's actually showing the amount of subsidies IDAs are giving to renewables seems to be increasing. Am I reading this chart right? Yes, you're absolutely right. So even though, um, you know, as I had said, there were some IDAs that were very resistant to providing subsidies for renewable energy. There have been others that really see attracting wind and solar as a great way in particular to grow their property tax base because having, you know, really expensive infrastructure come to a region that is mostly rural um, could, you know, even again, if they're getting a a break, could still increase uh, the size of property taxes that a county can collect by quite a bit. So I think it was 22 was the first year that uh, IDAs in New York actually handed out more subsidies to renewables than to fossil fuel projects. So that's an interesting trend. Uh, It's moving in the right direction if you have lofty climate goals, but is it moving fast enough to meet those lofty climate goals? You know, one thing that was interesting, too, about writing about the wind and solar projects is I think there are a lot of uh, state lawmakers, even those who, you know, really want the state to meet its climate goals, who would say, well, we just really shouldn't be leaving this up to you know, local authorities at all. So if we want to be, if we think, you know, a wind or a solar company is going to need a subsidy for it to be viable to build, we should be doing that at the state level, not at the local level. But yes, totally. One way to read this data might be, well, you know, at least the the tides are turning and um, more money now is going to clean energy than to fossil fuels. Anything else that you found uh, interesting or surprising as you were working on this? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that I've really found fascinating about reporting on uh, IDAs is it gives me a glimpse to what sort of the economic dynamics for towns and counties are around this project. Because, you know, as I said before, obviously providing a tax break to a huge corporation uh, might seem like an unnecessary waste of tax revenue, which I think is how a lot of people have framed this. And that might be the case. I think this also however, does uh, give a sense that, you know, having a big wind farm or solar farm or in in some cases it was a power plant, you know, come to your town while you might see many downsides could also, you know, increase the money that's available for schools um, or decrease the property tax burden on homeowners. So that's been really an interesting thing to watch play out. And I know you are watching all of this. Have you identified anything that you think needs to change to address any of these conflicts or problems caused by these subsidies? I mean, one thing that just has been really remarkable to me is sort of how little attention there has been from, you know, state energy regulators, uh, the state climate agencies, state lawmakers on, uh, you know, how IDAs might 
be impacting climate politics in New York. Um, and so that definitely seems like something to me. And, you know, obviously part of my job is is bringing people's attention to this. But I think that's something that seems like it really needs to happen is having even, you know, more uh, transparency and attention focused on this. What story are you going to be looking at next? Can you give us a sneak peek? Totally. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, the big stories on the climate front this legislative session are going to have to do with natural gas planning and whether people can have new natural gas hookups to their homes or whether the state is going to stop mandating that's something everybody can have. That's the New York Heat Act. I think there's going to be a lot of talk around speeding up um, energy transmission siting, and there's a bill on that this session. So those are two things I'm I'm following on the climate front. On the IDA front, there's going to be a big effort from legislators to stop IDAs from handing out tax breaks that cut into um, school tax revenue. So that's also, I think, going to be a big fight that's very much on on this issue this session. Julia, thank you so much for taking the time to go over all this. Thanks so much for having me on. The article is Hidden Subsidies Prop Up New York's Fossil Fuel Industry. You can find this article right now on our website, wjffradio.org. You can see all of uh, Julia Rock's climate reporting at nysfocus.com. I spoke with New York Focus reporter julia rock earlier today that's going to do it for the local edition i've been your host jason dole thank you so much for being here with me thank you for listening do keep on listening on air and live streaming wjffradio.org okay uh winter weather is on its way how much are we going to get we're waiting to see but there is a winter storm warning it remains in effect from midnight tonight until one o'clock tomorrow afternoon heavy snows expected total accumulation of six to 12 inches travel could be very difficult hazardous conditions could impact tomorrow morning's commute so do keep an eye on that and keep an ear right here on radio catskill public radio